Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This episode is a little bit late uh, because it was um, kind of a last-minute decision uh, to do this. We were going to post a, uh, a mini-sode today, but with so many people talking about Darren Aronofsky's mother, <clears throat> it seemed wrong that there was just silence from More Than One Lesson. There were no written reviews. There was no episode. So, yeah... Um, kind of made a, a split second decision to to push the minisode back and instead to do this but we were only able to record it on a thursday afternoon so i apologize that uh you know when it came time see i was going to say like oh when it you know that you weren't able to listen to more than one lesson on your morning commute well i posted at like 10 a.m california time so people have had their commute by then not everybody wakes up at 11 or 12 like I do um, lunch you know I'm sorry you didn't have your your weekly more than one lesson to listen to while you eat your lunch and uh, have and are not entertained at all by what you are listening to um, but anyway we are here now we're going to talk about Darren Aronofsky's mother but first I want to let everybody know that this episode is brought to you by Faith Life TV a new streaming service featuring a number of movies series lectures and more this includes Rich Mullins a, Ma a ragamuffin's legacy a documentary about the renowned Christian singer-songwriter Rich Mullins whose life story is perplexing tragic and inspirational uh, and then also there is a special offer for the listeners of More Than One Lesson. You can get your first month of Faith Life TV for free. Just go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the Faith Life TV link over on the side. After that, it's only $4.99 per month. Uh, and then I also wanted to let you know that this, is, uh, this episode is brought to you by DigiCycle Me, which provides support for people with very, who are in ministry, people who work for a church, or people who want to get things off the ground. Uh, they help us with uh, our social media presence, and they can help you as well. So you can find that at morethanonelesson.com as well. Uh, as far as new things on the website, and there's not much right now, uh, Bob Connolly reviewed a little scene film called Killing Gunther, which stars uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is written and directed by Taron Killam from uh, uh, Saturday Night Live. And so it is about a bunch of a bunch of lesser-known assassins deciding they want to kill... Um, the the top hitman in the world played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. So apparently it's pretty good. Uh, and then the Fear of God recently uh, talked about the recent uh, adaptation of It. So you can find those at morethanonelesson.com. All right. So we are going to talk about Darren Aronofsky's mother, but uh, uh, I need to bring in my co-host. It's Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. Thank you for asking. Hmm. You know, whatever I can do. 
I guess whatever. I take that back. That sounded strange. <laughs> um, it, Josh, let go of my hand. Um, um, so I'm, I, I was curious to see that killing Gunther movie actually, because, uh, it's like a mockumentary, isn't it? It is. Yeah. With a lot of, uh, a lot of comedic people. Yeah. Um, like it could be kind of funny. I, in college, I did a short film that was a mockumentary about Hitman. So I'm, I'm saying it was my idea, uh, this oh. movie. So, all right. Just uh, just waiting for the royalty checks to start rolling in. Well, you should you know you should call up your lawyer and say, hey, can we get some of that sweet killing Gunther money? Yeah, I think Which, so. Which uh, when I went to post uh, uh, Bob's review on IMDb, it was like the third one. Really? Uh, yeah. So oh, that, that's that's odd to me. Yeah, like Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he might have done like a terrible uh, another terrible Terminator movie a year or two ago. But he was in that movie Maggie. Like he is trying to do new things as an actor. It's not like he's a. It doesn't seem like he would be box office poison or anything like that. Right. And yes, this is a lesser known film, but he does have a name, and it does feel like. Yeah. This is not the hardest film in the world to market. That's. I feel like some of the studios have been really bad at marketing comedies nowadays. Like they don't really Mm. know how to market something unless it's a Marvel movie. You know, like. Yeah. That they know what to do, but. The comedies, a lot of them you don't even hear anything about, or like you'd hear a little bit, or you see one poster, and then you never hear from it again. I, was, I don't remember what I was listening to or watching, but somebody was talking about how uh, the comedy as a movie just really isn't what it used to be. That yes, there have been like little surges like Judd Apatow and that kind of thing. Um, but when you think of how many comedies there were like in the 80s, in the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s, um, that there really just aren't that many anymore. Now it's very much action. Yeah. Um, and I'll incorporate comic book movies into that as well. It's like action, animation, the occasional horror movie. I mean, drama is pretty rare, but that's always been kind of rare. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like major box office stuff, but like comedies used to be, you know, movies like Beverly Hills Cop, which admittedly was a, an action movie as well, but you know, a, a comedy with a big star, like that was like the number one movie of that year. Yeah. Like and the, that's just not a thing you really see anymore. I'm trying to think of the last like big comedy. I don't know. And a, and a pure comedy too. Cause like yeah. a year or two ago, I don't, I'm not good at years, but uh, there was like ghostbusters. Yeah. Big names, but it's a pre, it's an existing brand and right. it was an action thing. Yeah. Um, as well. So I yeah. think it might be like the hangover. That is, that is kind of the big one that people remember. I'd say uh, bridesmaids, I mean, bridesmaids probably was, a, was too. Big. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of, I mean, I like a lot of stuff that Melissa McCarthy does. I'm a big fan of spy. Did you see? Spy? Yeah, I saw spy. That was pretty I, funny. I laughed a lot at that, but again, that's the action. That's an action thing. And, and even that one wasn't that big. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's something worth uh, worth looking into. You just yeah. don't find them very much anymore unless they are attached to something else that has already been approved. I think the studios just I think they're afraid to make them a little bit cuz they're risky. I guess so. Nowadays, yeah. I feel like even if they have a lot of people <coughs> Excuse me. Even if they have a lot of people that are popular in it, they're likable and even bankable, sometimes they don't do that well i don't know i think i I honestly believe that stars don't mean what they used to that's possible Um, at this point you know you could i mean obviously robert downey jr as iron man like created he he helped create that character and it probably wouldn't be as popular if he if a lesser actor 
or lesser known actor had played him. But at the same time, Robert Downey Jr. was in a career slump yeah. uh, when he was cast as Iron Man. Yeah. It was see, it was seen as risky. He wasn't yeah. a star. Neither was Chris Evans or Chris Hemsworth. Um, Mark Ruffalo was kind of known, but he wasn't a star either. Mm-hmm. And so an argument could be made that like, whether it be Spider-Man or it could be the Fast and Furious movies or Transformers, like there are these iconic images and sometimes the stars fill them. Sometimes they don't, but the images are what people are going to see, not necessarily the stars themselves. Um, yeah. And I think I was writing about this recently. I was writing about it uh, over a battleship pretension about like why the Emmy award uh, ratings were down and the Oscars have been down consistently for, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same reason that like the star system doesn't really exist anymore. And I think it's because people are so saturated with stars already Mm. and celebrities like Twitter accounts, Facebook pages, uh, various fan pages, not to mention magazines. Like we are inundated with celebrities. So the idea of like, well, the only place I can see Cary Grant is there on the movie screen. Like Mm. that's very rare. And the idea of seeing celebrities out in their natural habitat, which is to say award shows, um, (laughs) you know, that is, there's not much novelty to that anymore. So I don't know. It's, I think it's one of the, I think you see this most with, uh, Tom Cruise, Mm. you know, this weekend that there's that movie American made, which has apparently done very well overseas where I think the star system still does kind of work. Hmm. Um, but it's predicted to not do very well this weekend. And like, if you get him aside, if you get him outside of a mission impossible movie, which is an established brand, like Tom Cruise is hardly a draw anymore. Hmm. Um, that's crazy. Like edge of tomorrow, a movie I love didn't do great. Mm -hmm. Um, especially compared with like previous blockbusters or the mission impossible movies. Yeah. You know, the mummy completely flopped. Yeah. Again, I'm only talking in the U S you know, and maybe that's the thing is maybe the reason that stars are still, are still underlined is because of the, you know, China primarily. Yeah. But anyway, it, it's funny. I'm looking here at like the big comedies of last year, according to IMDb. Anyway, almost none of them are just strictly comedies. Yeah. Like your number one here is La La Land, which I wouldn't even count yeah. as a comedy. Then you've got like animated stuff. You got Sing, Moana, Trolls. Yeah. That's You've got Deadpool, which is a, is yeah. a comic book movie. Something called Leap that I think oh, yeah. I've heard of, but I know nothing about. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, I believe it's a French animated film. Oh, that's animated uh, as well. That has been dubbed into English and was released here to very little yeah. fanfare. Got Zootopia here. Bad Moms is the first one that seems like a straight-up comedy to me. And yes, I guess it is. 10. And even that is kind of aping the hangover. Yeah. And while it's uh, it's on this list on IMDb, the meta score is 60, so it's not a good, like, right. it wasn't super liked. Then comes Captain Fantastic. <laughs> the uproarious comedy Captain Fantastic. I guess it's a dramedy. I like. I would. I, I would so, give it yeah. that. But which I, is I, to say, it's indie light. <laughs> That's a reference to an episode of Battleship Pretension that Josh was on last year, by the way. Sure um, is. That uh, that was well regarded, except by a few people who thought we were all being very smug. Although I think we were trying to be uh, pretty magnanimous. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, uh, so I will use this um, this odd discussion of comedy. Uh, 
to get us into the film because speaking of movies that are that were mismarketed <laughs> boy oh boy Darren Aronofsky's mother exclamation point um I knew nothing about it going in I had heard that there was and just I kind of well I mean I think this with Aronofsky anyway I just felt like there's probably some intensity here I'm I'm excited to see it and then by the time I saw it, I had heard like, okay, there's some allegory going on. I'd heard that it was anti-Christian, but I didn't know how. Hmm. Uh, but I was still, and but I didn't watch a trailer. I didn't look up any kind of plot synopsis. I wanted to go in as pure as possible. Um, I was frustrated that I had, that I had already heard the anti-Christian thing because mm-hmm. I think that, that my guard was up. Yeah. Um, so I go in. I see the movie. We'll talk about that in a moment. I come out. And the usher, because uh, it was the last show of the night, so he's just kind of hanging around. And uh, he's like, he goes, hey, did you like the movie? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, was it scary? And I said, what? <laughs> no. And he goes, oh, so it was more of like a mind bender kind of thing. I was like, yeah. And on the ride home, I was like, why did he ask me that? <laughs> then I saw the trailer Wow. Yeah. You've seen the trailer, right? I still haven't seen the trailer, but everything I've heard is that it's marketed as like, this is going to be the scariest film you've seen. It's it's marketed as a, it's not marketed as a standard horror, but it is marketed as like, up there, like, like with, you know, the exit, like a special kind of horror movie, yeah. but it is still, it still has the rhythms in the trailer of a horror film that is going to be so disturbing and so dark and it is dark and disturbing, but not it, it, at no point. I mean, it's tense, mm-hmm. but at no point did I get even the slightest whiff of horror movie. And it just led me to think that like <clears throat> that the studio did not know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think they just thought like, well, Hey, Jennifer Lawrence, people like Jennifer Lawrence, those hunger games movies. Um, Meanwhile, people probably were going to see those Hunger Games movies no matter what. Uh, but hey, Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, and let's uh, and it, we can market it as a horror movie. Here we go, like twenty five hundred theaters, and it was just like it did okay the first day, but then once everybody realized what it wasn't, mm-hmm. it dropped off. It got this F Cinema Score, which is basically <laughs> a rating of people coming out of the theater. Yeah, um, it was totally mishandled if they had held that film until like november and treated it as kind of awards fodder and not a mainstream horror film i think it would have done better i think it would have gotten a very specific type of audience it might have even gotten a couple of oscar nominations for like art direction um and other such things yeah but yeah i think the studio completely mishandled it and if the film had been held until like awards season I don't think it would have been as talked about. It would it would not be talked about as much as it is. But because it was put out as a mainstream film, it was sort of inviting mainstream comparisons. And hmm. a lot of people found it wanting. I found it infinitely more invigorating than most mainstream things I see. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't mean I love it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's such a strange... Just going into this thing, it's, it's an odd little phenomenon, Mother. Yeah, it is strange. And I... Part of me wonders, I almost want to give them uh, the benefit of a doubt and say that that was all kind of like a play in a way hmm. in order to get people in and talking about it, 
which could be, and, and it may not be at all. It may yeah. just been some lazy executives at Warner Brothers were like, well, what's the closest mold we can fit this into? Horror? Right. Great. Slap it on and throw it out there. Right. That's possible. But at the same time, it <laughs> I almost want to believe that they said, if we market this as what it is, that it's abstract, it's kind of an allegory, and like weird things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainstream audiences aren't going to see it because they're going to think it's too weird. And artsy audiences are going to see it anyway because they're interested in a new Darren Aronofsky movie. That yeah. that was enough for me. I saw yeah. the poster of it. I saw Jennifer uh, uh, Lauren. I almost said Jennifer Hudson for some reason. That is um, a way Why yeah. would you ever jump to I that? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think I saw that she and Javier Bardem were in it, both actors that I like. Yeah. Um, I saw the poster and then it was a Darren Aronofsky film. And I said, all right, that's, I'm not going to see anything else about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, but I'm going to go see that movie. So I don't know. Sometimes there's a, I think sometimes they do that where they think we're going to do this just to get some kind of attention. And now a lot of people are talking about it. Now, granted, they're talking bad things about it. Right. And that might've backfired. There might've been enough people yeah. that would have seen it that now aren't going to. But if they did that, like even giving them credit, they still misjudged something. Like yeah. either they mismarketed and thought this will be enough, or they thought like I know what we'll do. We'll kind of trick people and get them talking about it. Okay, well they have mis uh, misjudged the way in which people will talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think they misjudged just how frustrated people can get. Yeah, um, when they buy something that is not as advertised. Yeah, um, yeah, it could be and. Uh, they they have a real tendency to be so about opening weekend. Yes. Like, it's all about opening weekend. If you get the opening weekend, nothing else matters. Um, and it feels like that could have, again, been another thing that backfired. And maybe, I don't know if they got that weekend. I don't know what they were up against. Oh, the, it, it was third. It made $7 million. It was beat out by It in its second week and American Assassin, which uh, came out the same day. Yeah. They weren't going to beat it because that's an existing property. Right. And it was just marketed like crazy. Marketed like went. crazy. And that film, there are things I like about it, but that film, everything about it was genetically engineered to bring in and satisfy the widest possible audience. Yeah. That's not necessarily the worst instinct to appeal to a wide audience, but like, I feel like horror should never appeal to a wide audience. And when it is, you, I feel like you're doing something wrong. Yeah. But like, if if this is correct, what I'm looking at here, Box Office Mojo says, yeah, opening weekend seven point five, lifetime gross is at fourteen point five. Yeah, so that means like they they doubled what they made in the first weekend, and then that was it. Yeah, so that you know looks like it could have had the ad- adverse effect. Maybe they got a big big opening weekend, maybe a bigger opening weekend than they were expecting, but uh, and a lot of that was on Friday. Yeah, from that, that first day. Yeah. And then like, so it didn't even like hold the whole weekend. Like Friday came along, people saw the movie and said, I don't like this and I'm going to tell everybody about it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, and it is a fascinating film and listeners, I'll say this. If you haven't seen the film and you're interested, you should probably see it now because it's not going to be in theaters much longer. Um, if, and it's probably aren't, it's probably not in many at the moment, but, uh, but yeah, we are going to speak in spoilers because you kind of have to with this film. Uh, so if that bothers you, then uh, feel free to turn off the episode. Um, if it doesn't, then listen on. But what I will say is that 
so here, okay. So to just jump in and this even get, this gets to, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about the movie, I think it's a movie that everybody should see, not because they'll like it, but because I want it, I want to know people's opinion of it. Um, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. I think that as an allegory, it is specific and yet somehow sloppy. Um, as a narrative, same deal. Um, as an overall film, though, I find it so interesting. I appreciate, it, uh, I appreciate its ambition. I like a lot of what Aronofsky is doing. I like a lot of what the actors are doing. Mm-hmm. And so what I was going to say is that, you know, if, if you're interested in the movie, but you don't care about spoilers... You, you can continue listening. That's fine. But I also feel like it's a film that should be experienced. And if you go in knowing the whole story, which is what we're going to be talking about, um, I feel like it might ruin things for you a little bit. Yeah. And I'd things agree. have already been ruined about this movie quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's a film that I know you don't like that much and I don't, I don't love it, but I, I kind of respect it. Um, in certain yeah. ways, well, it's not even that I didn't like it that much. It's just the, it's one of those ones that the more I thought about it, the more there were kind of issues that I had with it. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think his, uh, well, I mean, do we want to get into what we liked and didn't sure. like about it? I don't want to jump on the gun. Um, I think I, I liked, I, I've always thought he's a good director. I think he's a talented yeah. director. I think he knows how to, um, create tension, uh, uh, very good at world building, a sense of space, all that kind of thing. And, um, and I think that's, I think he's doing that really well here. Um, I can see him making interesting decisions in, in that almost all of the shots are kind of her point of view or yes. looking at her head and shoulders kind of close. And that's disorienting in a way where we're looking at her. It's basically camera backing away from her as she walks yeah. around the house. And, that creates a sense of claustrophobia. It creates a sense of being kind of unsteady and even not feeling like, you know, exactly where, where you are. Um, which I think is intentional and is effective. So I like that. I, I think he, uh, I think he's good with actors too. I I think the work he's doing with them definitely shows through both in Javier Redem and, uh, and Jennifer Hudson, uh, <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence. What a weird um, place for your brain to go. There's so many Jennifer. I, I would know. go to my wife, Jennifer Smith, in Mother, <laughs> before I would go to Jennifer Hudson, yeah. who hasn't been in a movie in forever, and even then, not many. Yeah. Oscar winner Jennifer Hudson, by the way. That's true. Um, That's yeah. why I'm thinking of it. They're both both Jennifer's, both Oscar winners. You know what? I See, can't argue with you. Same number of syllables in that last name. They're practically the same person. I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You're making sense. Um, um, yeah, no, Aronofsky, like when you think about it, like the films that he's made, there are great performances. There's a lot of Oscar nominated performances mm-hmm. in there, like in Requiem for a Dream, Ellen Burstyn, uh, Mickey Rourke and the wrestler, uh, Natalie Portman, Portman won Best Actress for Black Swan. Yeah. Um, yeah, he is, I don't know what it is, he is very good with actors, especially, you know, they're going to have to do some some rough stuff emotionally. Yeah, and especially as heady as a lot of his films are, it's yeah. kind of surprising that he's still like, and maybe that's one of the reasons people like his films, is they still have a humanity to them. They still yeah. have like, 
something that can draw you in on an emotional level without being purely intellectual, but still having that level of some sort of intellectual exploration. Yeah, and I think he actually does have some affection for his characters, like yeah. even characters that aren't likable. Um, you know, I think it's, in some ways, I think it would be fair to compare Darren Aronofsky and somebody like a Lars von Trier. Um, you and I have talked about it uh, elsewhere. Mm. Um, it's not it's not a, a perfect comparison, but when I think of like really intense directors that are good with actors, but I think the difference is that I don't think Lars von Trier uh, thinks very highly of his characters. Now, an argument could be made based on Mother that Darren Aronofsky hates everyone uh, <laughs> and just hates people as a thing. Um, but we'll get into that in a moment. But when it comes to working with actors, I think there and and with characters and the characters that he that he writes, I think he does. I think he understands them and I think he wants us to understand them as well. So he might not even like them. He might not even have affection for them, but he does sympathize with them and wants us to as well for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, those are all things that I liked about the film. And I like just the fact of having made it. Like I would, I would rather see filmmakers doing something like this. That's a little bit more out there and a little bit more risky. Yes. Um, because it may have been you. I was saying this too. At the end of the day, I'm, I probably came out of that movie feeling like it was like a, a three and a half star movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I'd rather see a three and a half star movie. That's something different than I haven't seen before. than I will, uh, a movie that's a, a remake or, yeah. you know, just something that's retreading, uh, you know, another Spider-Man or something. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to genre movies and I'm not opposed to remakes and you know, I enjoy the, the Marvel movies, but my enjoyment of them is within a very limited space. It's ultimately, it's like, wow, this is really great. And it's not like, Oh, it's really great for a Marvel movie, but it's like, we all know what this is going to be. And every once in a while it'll push the boundary and that's fun, but that's the most it's going to do Yeah, is push the boundary of a comic book movie. Mother pushes the boundary of boundaries of, traditional narrative of uh character arc and really just of what people what people may or may not want to see in the theater (laughs) and that is always whether i like it whether i agree with it that's something i always like Hmm. i would rather there be 10 movies like this that i don't like than than you know what even uh, a more mainstream like the fifth movie in a in a series that i do like yeah um, so like, even if this didn't, even if I didn't come out being like, that was an amazing film, yeah, it's still uh, on par with pretty much everything else I'm seeing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a lot that I, a lot of the stuff that I liked is, is pretty much what you mentioned as well. I enjoyed the cinematography. I liked, I think it, I'm pretty sure they shot it on film, right? It's pretty grainy. Um, it's a good question. Um, maybe they added it. I don't know. Digital doesn't look that grainy usually. No, not always, but they, they, they can like gum it up a little bit. Maybe. Um, yeah. Now I'm curious about that. Cause the, the other, the practical thing of as much handheld work as, as is in it yeah. would be certainly easier on a digital. Yeah. Yeah, camera. that's true. But I, you know, I, I don't know. And I will say this, uh, it's it's handheld, but it's really fluid. Yeah. Handheld is usually 
it, it gets to me a little bit. Um, it, it can get me a little bit nauseous and then I get used to it and we're good. This was none of that. Like it, it, in a film like this, you don't want shaky cam. Um, you, and if, if the camera is constantly moving, you do want there to be a fluidity to it. And I think this film definitely has that. Um, I do like all the performances. I particularly liked Michelle Pfeiffer, mm. um, in the part of woman. <laughs> Again, we're talking about an allegory. Um, because, uh, first off, it's just, it's been, it's nice to see her again. I haven't seen Michelle Pfeiffer in a while. Um, and to see that she still has a real bite to her, yeah. to, to the way she carries herself. Like her character has moments of vulnerability and sadness and loneliness, but also there's a real, well, I feel bad saying this because of course, uh, one of the parts she played, but there's a real cattiness to her character. Mm. Um, (laughs) and I would, my hope is that because even in reviews that I've read, um, that do not like the movie, the reviewer goes out of their way to say Michelle Pfeiffer is pretty good. Yeah. And it's a shame the film is not bigger, but my hope is that it's big enough for people to look at her and say like, Oh yeah, she's great. Well, let's and, put her in more stuff. And she's going to be in this new, uh, murder in the Orient Express movie. That's coming right. Out. So Playing that's the, the Lauren McCall role, I believe. Yeah. So that's, that's good for her to have yes. both of these coming out close together. Very different roles. I have to assume <laughs> I would assume having so, seen yes. the old, uh, yeah, the old murder on the Orient Express, but it looks like it was shot on film. If this is right. Yeah. It's, so. I think it's a good looking movie and I think, and I also like Ed Harris. Like I have a certain idea of, of an Ed Harris character and I don't think of Ed Harris as a guy who is careless or mm. plays careless characters. Like he's usually very well put together. Sometimes he'll lose his temper, but for the most part he's very official. Whereas in this, the character is just, there's a casual quality to him that I, uh, looking at it on the paper, on the page, I would never have thought to cast Ed Harris in that part. Yeah. But I thought he was great. Yeah, he always he mostly plays a character that is so kind of in control and reserved yeah. and everything. So those even from the first moments he's in this movie, you're like this. You notice something different about the yeah. performance, and that's yeah. He puts you on edge simply by his performance. Yeah. Like I said there's a lot of tension. It's not a horror movie, but there's a lot of tension. The moment he shows up, it's like I don't trust this person at yeah. all. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. It, it looks like they shot it on 16 millimeter too, which is okay. particularly grainy. So that's hmm. that's interesting. That's an interesting choice. Um, yeah, I'm not somebody. I don't usually think much about film versus digi- versus mm-hmm. digital. I wish I cared more, but I don't. Um, but I am always curious as to like, for example, here, not 35, shot it on 16. Okay, so you decide to shoot it on film. And a particularly grainy film. So there's clearly a choice there. Yeah. You want your film to look a certain way. So mm-hmm. I'd like to know why he might have done that. Of course, I could ask him because Darren Aronofsky has chosen to do a lot of interviews about this movie <laughs> yeah. and in which he explains himself, with which bothers me <laughs> so much. And I understand directors, you know, they they do interviews all the time, they talk about their work, that's fine. But there's something about there's something about this film and him doing these interviews right now. I mean, you uh, were at a, a screening and a panel where it was him and was it Jennifer Lawrence as well? No, it was just him. It was just him. Okay. And William Friedkin was William doing that. Yeah. Director of the French Connection and The Exorcist, mm-hmm. among others. Um, and 
and yeah, one thing that you, well, I'll let you, I'll let you tell it like the big thing. Cause I've read other accounts of mm-hmm. that back and forth, uh, in which people very much took Aronofsky's side, yeah. um, as you would. Um, uh, but yeah, I'll let you explain a little bit what yeah. happened there. It was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting screening. It, it was funny for me too, because there's a lot of very clear allegory in the film and I missed pretty much every bit of it which okay <laughs> like were you sleepy or something no you're I, the bergman guy i know and i was the whole time i'm trying to think okay like what what exactly does this represent and i'm like getting that there's something in here but i missed all this obvious biblical allegory stuff through the entire movie it wasn't even like i got to the end and there was one thing that i was like oh i see i get it yeah. and then put it all together it was not until uh, basically William Friedkin explained it, explained the allegory part of it to everyone, like sort of asking Aronofsky, he was yeah. like, so, you know, Javier Bardem is God and Jennifer Lawrence represents like the earth. And like, he explained all this yeah. stuff out and I was like, Oh my gosh, how did I miss every-? And then I'm like, it had an Adam and Eve. It had Cain and Abel. It had a flood even where yeah. all the people are it cast out. A like, garden of Eden. had a garden of yeah. Eden and a thing they weren't allowed to touch. It had God literally casting them yeah. out of the garden of Eden. It has a Jesus that people yeah. then eat. Yeah. It's like literally at no point during any of that. <laughs> look, I don't mean to make fun of you. Like you're, you're into moves that are infinitely deeper than the stuff I like. Mm. Um, but, and I, and I was a little iffy, like, I had heard it was an allegory and I had heard it was anti-Christian. So I was like, okay, so I'm sure these characters rep, obviously they represent something. This is not uh-huh. a straightforward narrative. Uh, and then like when, when man and woman show up and we don't know they're called that, um, it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. When the brothers show up, that's when it's like, okay, yeah. all right. It's all falling into place now. Yeah. Um, and then it was just, but you know what? I don't think the flood occurred to me. I, uh, Garden of Eden absolutely did. How could yeah. it not? But, um, but yeah, the flood, uh, I had not thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was funny that I, I totally missed all of that. I don't know how it happened. And, and my wife who was sitting next to me, she got a lot more of it than I did. She didn't, she didn't get the mother earth thing. Hmm. Um, but she, she saw it very much as like Mary, mother Mary. Right, and the fact that she does birth God's right. child does play a role there, yeah. Right, um, and and that may still be part of the part of an intentional thing. That also may be one of many places which we'll talk about where the metaphors start to maybe eat cannibalize themselves. <laughs> sure, um, but uh, so yes. Anyway, in the in the Q and A, William Friedkin explained to me what the movie was about, okay. and I was like, oh, how did I miss all that? But then because of that, that kind of led into a lot of questions about, well, uh, Friedkin was very interested to know where Aronofsky stands on the idea of faith in on general. God thing. He did ask him at one point, do you believe in God? Yes or no. <laughs> so there was a, he asked several times and people in the audience were visibly or, and, and audibly getting bothered by it. Um, they didn't want to keep hearing that question, but at the same time, some of the other questions that came from people in the audience were indirectly kind of getting at the same thing, mm-hmm. which I think was, if this is a film about the earth, which 
Aronofsky was very open to say that that's what it was. He yeah. he brought up right away that like he is a he's on the board of the Sierra Club, and he started talking about that's like a hunting club, right? <laughs> it sounds like it should be. <laughs> oh, that I'm sure they'd love that. <laughs> um, but uh, he started talking about the Paris Accords. He started talking about like Trump and how we have to vote for people who will respect climate change and right. uh, about how. Uh, you know, here when we're in this, we're seeing some of the worst hurricanes to ever like to happen in however many years or whatever. So he was, he made no bones about like, this is about, and this is about the environment. This is about the earth. This is about people not taking good care. And that's uh, a big theme of Noah as well. Exactly. Which again, I should have, I should have thought of that, you know? Um, because then the analogy makes or the, the metaphor to a point right. makes sense again. Here, this is it's you know she and the house are connected. It's this place that as people come into it, they don't take care of it. They don't no. take it seriously. They use it and um, and don't respect it. Yeah, and it it bears out well to that degree. Yes, I think. I think so. And and he he you know he said he wanted people to be able to empathize with that and i think that i think that works there are points when you think like why are these people not why are they taking advantage of the way yes. they do? why will they just not listen and the fact especially with the sink you yeah. know which you know is a metaphor for eventually a metaphor for the flood because it's literally she tells them the same people over and over and over yeah. again and they just do the same thing over and over again they just jump up on that sink that isn't braced yeah and then it it breaks, and that that whole sequence. So many, so much of this sequence is, you know, there's a visceral uh, tension and energy to it. There's a vitality to it that you know, in those moments, like, oh, I'm so frustrated for her, mm-hmm. and they're gonna break that sink. Oh, they <laughs> broke that sink. What did you think was gonna happen, you idiot? Yeah. Um, I'm also a. I guess I'm not a new homeowner because I had a uh, we had a townhome, but like now I'm in an actual house. And that film is so stressful because <laughs> we just had a, we just had a housewarming. I had, I had just been doing like, uh, yeah. uh renovations in my kitchen. And so then I'm like, don't, she said, don't sit on that yeah. thing. You're going to break it. I'm like, do you know how much work that's going to be with all the, the water? And I, I mean, maybe that's and- how it's a horror movie, <laughs> you know, like people in horror movies, they're like, don't go in there. And we're saying like, this thing's not braced. <laughs> Um, it's, it's horror for homeowners. Oh boy. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, which there's an idea for HGTV, right? Yeah. Shake up their, uh, their, uh, fall nice. schedule a little bit. Um, but, uh, where was I going with that? Well, I know that. So just to briefly talk about this, uh, Q and a where like, and it sounded like Aronofsky was kind of dodging the question or being kind he, of vague about it. He definitely was. He didn't want to answer that. And he said like, he thought that was a very personal thing and he didn't feel like he needed to, to say anything about that, which I can respect. I have two thoughts about that. <laughs> okay. I'll let you get to those in a yeah, minute. You but go ahead. Uh, I think I was starting to say, uh, some people seem to be coming to the same question from, uh, from different angles, which is if this is a film about the earth, then why is God in it? And why is God in it the way that he is? Right. What do you see, you know, w- w- coming out of it? If we're going to say, okay, this is what the allegory is. 
I think the biggest question then is what do you think, what role does God play in this? What role should God play? Right. Do, should we look at God as purely a symbol? Is that the way you see God? Because if yeah. so, why does he have such a direct agency and connection to all of the people who represent yeah. humans? Yeah, it's the should. It's the prescriptive part of the film that I find most problematic, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, yeah, I would say I'm comfortable with him not saying whether he believes in God, but I almost wish that he would say, I'm actually not sure. If he said, I don't know, I believe that. Yeah. Like, based on this movie, because I had heard, you know, when Noah came out, everyone's saying like, oh, you know, Aronofsky's a noted atheist. Then you see this movie, and it's like, this is not, this doesn't seem like the work of an atheist. Yeah. Um, this seems like somebody who is deeply frustrated with either the idea of God or with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if he had said, I don't know, I think I would have been happier with that. But there's something about like, oh, so you make this movie and then you do a and a and a bunch of other interviews. And suddenly this question, which is absolutely invited when you watch this movie somehow now it's off limits. Like if yeah. you, I, I kind of feel like if you, if you decide you want to break the silence on your own movie and not let it speak for itself, every question is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I do. So the metaphor, the, the allegory part of it, as far as like a one-to-one comparison or whatever it's like okay this is the story and here's how it is represented here i don't necessarily require it to be perfect um but it is very close especially in like the creation account and like really just genesis in general Mm -hmm. um that suddenly when it starts to diverge that's when it's like okay now like it's it's in the differences that i feel like the film is really where the message might be yeah and uh, the Part of that reason is because the closer that you stick to the things that you're, you know, creating an allegory mm-hmm. of, um, the more those things have to re- have to represent something, right? Because of the way that you've set them up. So, like one of the big issues that I have is its representation of Jesus. Yes. Now, you know, uh, after the child is born mm-hmm. um like god takes him and gives him to the people which like that you can still make yes. that one make sense but um then the child is is killed which yes. again jesus dies but uh and like eaten by the people so that's supposed right. to be uh, the death and and the and uh, communion you know yeah but the the child never has any choice of its own right so that's taking out the idea of jesus and as as a someone who is choosing to sacrifice himself and the way that god approaches it by saying like we have to make this be worth something to this people and i think he's trying to in that say i'm trying to to vocalize the exact problem with that. Cause it's a little complicated, but if you're going to say that, yes, Jesus was a person and he did die. Mm-hmm. And what God would want is for us to like find some sort of good out of it. Right. Because that's what seems to be presented. 
I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it really takes away any kind of intentionality on God's part. Certainly. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the problems yeah. for sure that it, there doesn't seem to be any real purpose to it. Um, but also that, uh, if, if we're getting to that point where we're saying, well, yes, this child was born and died and, and, you know, we got to find some kind of meaning to it. We're kind of taking out of the equation, the fact that he, he is the son of God. Yes. Which is still part of the, the reality of the film, right? Like he's God's son. So he's not just a, just a child. There's something yeah. more to him than that. So uh, that's another one of the places where the, in, in both of those ways, the, the metaphor kind of doesn't work then. And, and I think rightfully prompts people to say, what do you think about like God and Jesus? Like yeah. what, the film's not. Yeah. Was Jesus's death incidental? Was it just like, Oh, how about that? Like there seems to be a big whoops quality to God <laughs> in this where it just, he does stuff and then whoops, this other thing happens. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I use the term intentionality. There doesn't seem certainly there's no doesn't seem to be a great deal of will. There is not, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of omniscience mm-hmm. um, or omnipotence or omnipotence. Um, aside from like what is revealed at the end, yeah. uh, just creation of the whole thing. But then within that, um, you know, God seems to be like the great enabler uh, and that he just presents his son as like this beautiful extension of him. And then like, and do with him what you will and then maybe they'll do something good with it, with him. Maybe they won't. Who knows? Um, that's where it really started getting mixed up. Because what what I take it to me is like, so are you angry with people because they did not appreciate and killed Jesus, and then made that killing uh, the religion, or like, are you agreeing that Jesus did not deserve to die? Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that too. So then the question is, what now? You know, and I feel like that's the thing is I feel like this is a film that is made by someone who is struggling with the idea of God and, and, and the God of the Bible. Yeah. Because there's no reason for the, that this film has to have any kind of biblical allegory in it. Like the idea of this woman who represents the earth, having people come into her house and not respect it. You can totally have that same story. Absolutely devoid of any kind of, uh, uh, biblical allegory. Yeah. But he, he put that in there, you know? Yeah. He put it in there, but he didn't seem to it. Look, it happens. Like you and I are both raised in the church. I've heard people. I know people who were not raised in the church and I've seen comedians and stuff who will use terminology that they've clearly heard, but they don't understand what it means. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to look down on them for that. There's no reason they should understand what it means. But like, I remember Lewis black once, uh, referenced the rapture, but like he clearly was talking about rapture in the Christian term, but still used it as an emotional state. You know, it's like, it's like I, you know, uh, they had never experienced the rapture and it's like, mm, you're not talking, you're talking about rapture, hmm. not the rapture, but you're using the term, like you're not, hmm. not using it right. And this is what that feels like. It's like somebody who wants to engage the Christian God and Jesus and the way they relate to humanity and the way all of it relates to the earth, um, but doesn't quite know how to do that, which again, I still am okay with that. And I think it's kind of interesting, but I will say that if you're going to, this speaks to, um, 
this speaks to last week's episode that, you know, if you're going to start getting preachy, I don't know. On one hand, I don't think that a person needs all the answers about a specific issue. You know, I don't know what I think about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still know, I might know enough politically to say like, this is pretty much the platform I stand by. Even if within that, there are things I'm a little iffy about. Um, so I don't require that, but I will say that if you're going to be as preachy and I would say as condemning as Aronofsky is in this film and in interviews, um, you need to have a better handle on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, you can, you can absolutely talk about how people did not appreciate Jesus. You can absolutely be condemning of God as this great enabler. You can do all of that with a deeper understanding. You might be able to do it better. Mm-hmm. You might be able to be more condemning yeah. uh, if you knew this stuff more. But, and especially like that, fir- like that first 45 minutes, you know, with man and woman and Cain and Abel and, you know, Garden of Eden and all that kind of stuff, like that works so well as an allegory. Like it's so close that when it really starts to go off the rails, that's when I get frustrated and Mm -hmm. where I feel like his message starts to get muddled. And part of it may be also because he, he comes from a Jewish background. He was sure. So he may be more familiar with and have a closer connection to that part of the Bible, to the, you know, more of the Genesis story, more of the old Testament. Yeah. Um, and then that one may be why it gets a little bit muddled when you get into like, well, who is Jesus? And like, yeah. I mean, he still presents him as the son of God. So there's a question there. Part of it too is, is I think he just, I think all of his films in my, from my perspective anyway, have suffered from sort of competing ideas a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes to have a lot of ideas in there, which I like, but sometimes they're at odds with each other. And, yeah. uh, maybe he doesn't know how to reconcile them. So, so he doesn't, but like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but a couple of the things that you just said that he seems to raise are like the idea of the innocence of Jesus, right? That he doesn't deserve this. Right. Like that's, that's a big one for me because like, well, that seems like a really interesting point of departure. I'd love to talk to him about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, like the innocence seems to come from Jesus being a child. If only how much more interesting would this film have been? And it's already very interesting. Mm-hmm. How much more interesting would it have been if Javier Bardem's son were allowed to grow up mm-hmm. and then make some decisions? Yeah. But that could really complicate things. And we want to show these people as absolute monsters who do not know what they're doing, but will try to make some kind of sense of it. And when they try to make sense of it, they make it worse. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It's, it really, which brings me, I think, you know, to talk about this film artistically is to talk about it thematically. Like Mm. you can't, you can't avoid it. Um, but this is what I came out of the, I came out of the film thinking about things that I don't think Aronofsky intended. In fact, Mm. I'm positive that is the case. (laughs) Because I look at the people in that house and I'm furious with them. I'm, I'm annoyed and then I'm furious and then I'm just, I'm murderous towards them. Like I, I hate them so much because you're supposed to. Yeah. Um, and the whole time, you know, Jennifer Lawrence is saying, get out of my house. And so, okay. So she is earth. God is enabling people to ruin earth. She's earth and the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
she says, get out of my house and people are just people. And so I found myself thinking like, uh, okay, so what is that? What is, if, if we're meant to apply this to our lives, what does get out of my house look like? Mm -hmm. Complete nuclear annihilation. It means go to space. It means go to space and then ruin the moon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was the, uh, that was the original title. Yeah. Ruin Ruin the the moon. moon. (laughs) It's not actually a good title. title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, that's the thing is like it is condemning of people and it's very easy to say, get out of my house. But I want to say, I want to say to him like, well, we're here. So now what, if you just say we need to take care of this place, that's fine, but we're not. So what now? Mm -hmm. All I'm seeing from this film is condemn uh, condemnation Mm -hmm. and that's all. and, And that's it. And and the idea of forgiveness is seen, I think, as enabling. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch this movie, and I feel, and I feel like I have a deeper insight into humanity, which is to say, we like the idea of forgiveness, but I don't think we actually like it. I don't think we embrace it. We mm-hmm. certainly, we probably want it for ourselves, and even then, I'm not sure because mm-hmm. we still like the idea of like, I won't enjoy my punishment, but at least I know I have paid my due. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at this film and just the fact that Javier Bardem's character is condemned by the filmmaker for allowing, for allowing people to be there, mm-hmm. which is to say allowing people to exist at all. Um, and then even when his own son is destroyed, uh, by these people, um, he says, we need to find a way to forgive them. Mm-hmm. And that is seen as the last straw. Now it's time for mother earth to destroy all of these people and herself. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, of again, Jesus sacrifice and the, the forgiveness that comes from it, which again is not necessarily, I think how Aronofsky is thinking, but the, the idea of that being the last straw and like, no, we cannot forgive these people. What they've done is unforgivable. They need to get out of the house. And I just think like, what a, I don't have a very high view of humanity. Um, but I look at this film and I look at the, it's, it's, I look at it's being alert, almost allergic to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I just think, what a miserable existence that might that must be to just look around and hate everyone. And by the way, that means you too. Mm-hmm. You hate yourself as well for just what you are. Mm-hmm. You know. And again, I'm not saying like it, by all means, if you want to be an environmentalist, that's fine. If you want to say let's make a difference, but what is he? But he's not saying that. Yeah. She's not. And- you know, she's not trying to get. There aren't some people there that are trying to keep the house in order mm-hmm. there are people that do offer to fit to like paint they try to you know they do try to to do their part and interestingly enough jennifer lawrence wants no part of it yeah. like this is her house mm-hmm. nobody else's so there's there's also a, a weird possessiveness to her as well that i still think we're supposed to be on board with so like yeah. even when they do when they try to do well they are doing damage in her eyes mm-hmm. which is to say in our eyes because she's 100% sympathetic officially so I don't know it's a I came out having a 
like I said, a deeper understanding of humanity, whether, but not in the way he, not in the way he intended. Yeah. Cause it ends up being a little bit of a revenge movie. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, uh, I mean, it's not hard to see that that resonates with people more than nice forgiveness movies. Yeah. Um, people love revenge stuff and it's because it seems just, yeah, I think because ultimately God's forgiveness of us is not just. Mm -hmm. And the more that we are invested in the idea of justice, the more we, we kind of come to a crossroads where either we have to say like vengeance is his and leave justice up to God. uh, Even if that doesn't, uh, even if that means that some people won't get what we think justice should look like, or we have to kind of take it into our own hands. And interestingly enough, a lot of this will play into next week's episode, which everybody, it's already been recorded. So I already know that, (laughs) but, um, yeah, it's, I guess maybe it's just something I've had on my mind lately. And this film kind of spoke to it. Mm -hmm. Um, that yes, revenge does feel good. Um, and, but where in the Bible does it say we have to feel good all the time? You know, mm-hmm. forgiveness is, this is, I'm simplifying here, but forgiveness is all about taking the hit mm-hmm. and not returning it. Right. Like, that's what it's all like. Taking the hit literally means I am now possessing it. It's mine and it hurts. And this is where it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And, And Javier Bardem seems willing to take the hit. Jennifer Lawrence does not. And the film is on her side. Yeah. And I look at that and I, probably because I'm a Christian, I find that heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. What a way to live. What a horrifying world this is where we just are destroying it all the time. And we all, and we do deserve, uh, condemnation and death and that's the end mm-hmm. we just deserve it and someday we'll get it <sighs> that's exhausting you know yeah I, I wonder also what he I feel like the film suggests that this is the natural unavoidable state of people. Would you say that's correct? I think so. Yeah. Which I think if that's the case leads you to another, uh, again, this is a thing where I think he maybe hasn't thought it all the way through, or maybe it's just a, a, uh, difficult moral question, which is what makes what she wants more valuable than what they want. Yeah. Cause she was there first, I guess. Maybe, but this is where, and this is where the, this is where I feel like he is struggling with the idea of God Mm -hmm. because she is the narrative of the film is that she has built this, she's built this house up, you know, after it was destroyed and that she is like responsible for it and she loves it so much. Well, he did it. He built it from the ground up and he does it over and over again. Yeah. He keeps putting himself in the position because he remembers everything. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, there have been several different mothers, uh, and this is just one. Who knows how many there have been? There will an argument can be made that there's an infinite infinite number because he's just going to keep trying, Mm -hmm. and maybe it'll maybe maybe this time it'll be right. Or maybe it's this every time and he's okay with it because it involves engagement with humanity. If and and I do think there's a hint of that at the end of the film. Yeah. Which I find fascinating. And so I don't think it's full on condemnation for Javier Bardem's character. I think he as a creator, I think he finds something beautiful in that. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is from the way the role is and how much is from the performance as well. Sure. Because Javier Bardem knows how to imbue that character with, uh, with this sense of, of love, I guess. Yeah. Because we don't ever really think that he doesn't love these people. And when he says things like they have nowhere else to go, yeah, it it seems genuinely sympathetic, and maybe the film doesn't feel that way. Maybe Aronofsky, yeah. as a filmmaker, seem sees that as a problem that he's allowing yeah. too much. But as a viewer of the film, I, and it's interesting for me too because I didn't think of him as God during the film, mm, okay. so I wasn't going and thinking like, "Well, he's God, so what he does is good." Right. I had no connection to that, but I still felt like what he was saying was good. I felt like it, it's good to have sympathy on these people. He, yeah. he's neglecting what he's doing. Uh, he's hurting her, yeah. which I think is bad. And to the degree that he's neglecting the concerns that she has, I saw that as bad, Yeah, but I could still see something good in wanting to help these people. If they genuinely don't, don't have anywhere else to go. And that's the thing is, you know, when you, if you want to look at it, Purely, like, let's put an allegory aside. That's a big house for two people. Mm-hmm. It's selfish. It seems selfish to me. Now, if they want to start a family, okay, that's fine. But to say, like, like it's clear from the, from the jump that Jennifer Lawrence does not want them there. Mm-hmm. Like, she might be, she will tolerate Ed Harris. That's one person. She will tolerate one person as long as he's visiting. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And, but then the idea of him staying the night, much less two or three, who knows? Uh, she's immediately turned off to that. So then the question is if we, so now let's jump back to the allegory. So what exactly does Aaron Aronofsky think? How does he think sh- things should be? That this should just be an empty world that God yeah. I- inhabits somehow and that the moment people showed up, we just ruined everything. Like that's the, that is where it gets muddled because I do think to repeat myself a bit, you know, it is a film that's very condemning. And I do think that we have a natural instinct when we see condemnation, whether we are condemning something or somebody else's, we do also want to fix. We want to say like, okay, but what's, how do we fix this? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, And so how do we fix this? Darren Aronofsky. There doesn't seem to be a clear uh, solution. And uh, what he says in the Q and a, because, because Frank can ask him that he said, like, what do you want people to do? Like what, what should people see your movie and what should that, uh, what action should they take? Yeah. And he was basically saying like, vote for people who will 
support the Paris Accords or something like that. You know, like that's it's pretty low ambition. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the thing. The putting that aside, the man who made this movie, the prescription, kill yourself. Mm. That's the prescription. Mm-hmm. Not, like that's not me saying it to him. That's mm-hmm. him saying it to us. That's the only way we can we can fix this thing yeah. is if we cease to be. Yeah. Because even if we vote for people who, you know, even if we fill Congress with people that are in favor of the the Paris Accords, people are still going to drive cars. People are still going to fly planes. We're still going to consume things. We're still going to make things out of plastic. We're going to, not everyone's going to recycle. There's always, it's, it's inherent just by existing. We are going to make things a little bit worse. Yeah. And that's, that's one place that I think maybe his, uh, his idea of what he wants people to do based on the film, it, uh, I guess on paper, or at least what he says is yeah. seems to be separated from the, uh, the emotion that it's, that's inside him. And he, he said about the film, he, he saw it as like a, his howl. He described it like okay. his scream to the world. And if it is, if there is something primal in that, it, the primal message of the film seems to be these people are a cancer on this good thing and they need to be destroyed. And even if he says, well, I want people to vote to take care of the earth. The the film really suggests that there is a part of him that says the, these people are always a problem and will never not be a problem. And I'm, you know, I like that, that term howl because Mm -hmm. I think everybody has that. Everybody Mm -hmm. looks at the world around them or their specific, you know, industry or, or groups and they see what's wrong and they just get so angry that they just howl. And then it's like, okay, now that that's done, what do I do Mm -hmm. to actually implement that? Um, you know, we can't just stop at the howl. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with the film just being almost purely emotional, but the problem with an allegory is that it's also going to be intellectual. Right. It's hard to, to make it something purely emotional like that. And I, I, I feel like that's not the kind of films that he makes. I don't think I'd say there's a problem with that. I don't know that I want to say, why can't you make something that's purely emotional? Right. I I don't think that I really want that or that that's who he is as a filmmaker or an artist. And so I I don't think that he should do that. And Um, to heighten something, you know, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, you could almost see the film as a satire uh, in a way, you know, and satire will often heighten things to the point of ridiculousness. Um, so that the people watching it are like, wow, that's so ridiculous. Well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe by showing this extreme imagery, it causes people to, yeah, maybe I'll vote for this person next, next go around, you know, which sounds <laughs> so small, but that's the idea as well. Yeah. We can maybe only make small differences and that's the most we can do. So, you know, if that's his goal, then, then so be it. But the problem is, you know, he's not always going to be around. Mm-hmm. to explain what he thinks we should do mm-hmm. after a while the film is just there and as this primal howl against the flawed nature of humanity i can absolutely sympathize with that but by connecting it with religion and by saying that god just stands idly by while we do these terrible things and that we are irredeemable unforgivable and irredeemable well okay you're making you've gone from howling to making statements Mm -hmm. and i find those statements to be so disheartening Hmm. you know as somebody who already doesn't have a super high opinion of people and himself i look at that and i just think like 
by being around, I'm just making everything worse. Yeah. And I already think that just as a function of my personality, much less just being a living thing. Thanks movie. Yeah. Um, to change gears a little bit, uh, another thing that I thought was, was interesting. This isn't a new tactic, but I feel like I saw it in two big movies this year in particular, which is, to to make this message in the film that people are a problem in this way mm-hmm. um but in order to show the way that people the only way that they can truly show us how people are a problem to something is to turn that thing into a person right so the reason that we can identify with the earth in this is because he imbues it with a will and with desires right. and, and with humanity. Um, the, the very thing that that's destroying it. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the, uh, that's kind of the direction that I guess to take with it, which again runs into a bunch of other metaphor problems. Like if the reason that all this is wrong is because the earth doesn't want this. Well, if the earth doesn't want things, then that, you know, that falls apart or whatever. Yeah. But uh, the other big movie where I saw the same thing in is, I don't know if you saw Okja. I did not. But it, it's essentially the same thing. I wanted thing. to. I like that director. It, and he's, I think he's still a good director. And I like, uh, a lot has been made of uh, how over the top some of the performances are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but having seen The Host, yeah, that's just the way he directs actors. And yeah. and I think that works within his worlds. And we're, Although Snowpiercer, I mean, aside from Tilda Swinton, I guess, uh, performances are pretty pretty subtle in that, especially compared to other stuff. Yeah, more of them as a whole. But they're, this one definitely has a lot of over the... People, some people hate the uh, the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal performance. Mm-hmm. I kind of I don't. I, like, it's, it's way over the top for sure. But I think... I think that's the director. I don't think that's the actor. Right. It's some combination, obviously. Anyway, um, uh, the reason I bring up that one is because it does kind of the same thing. It has to get us... The message of the film is that we should be more respectful of animals and essentially not eat animals. Yeah. And in order to do that, they have to give us an animal that's a person, that acts as a person, that saves a girl's life early in the film, that suffers a, a rape... Uh, in one scene of the movie, they have to have all these things happen right. so that we feel about this thing like we feel about people and then can say, yes, people are the problem because they treat this right person this way. Yeah. And then of course, if you carry that along, it's like, Oh, what about the lion people? Oh, they're killing a lot of, a <laughs> lot of other animals and eating them. Okay. So we shouldn't do that. We should be better than that. Mm but maybe we're so much better that we do kind of have dominion over, over everything. Like, yeah, it's, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with, you know, uh, anthropomorphizing things and, and personifying things. Um, but it does, you know, and the film probably wouldn't be as dynamic if it were just Javier Bardem in a house that people were ruining. Right. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but, uh, but I think it's just an interesting idea that, uh, it's interesting to see people using that technique of anthropomorphizing something in order to show problems with people. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, it's, it's almost like, 
people are the problems. Like, yeah, but that's person. Okay. This once it's fine, <laughs> but after this, it's all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's something that I'll say before we move on to the uh, companion film and then, which we'll talk about very briefly. Um, so here's what's interesting for me doing what I do on this show and in general in the eight years that more than one lesson has been going on. And I'm not going to say this is a function of more than one lesson. I just mean that I've been more attuned to how are Christians approaching film? Um, and I think because there's been a lot of Christian film made, it just, whether it's good or not, which it mostly is not, uh, it just gets people thinking in terms of film, which I think after a while just naturally causes them to want better. You know, just to expect better. The more um, you're exposed to. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I wish I could find, if I could find this article again, it'd be something that might be interesting to post on mm-hmm. the, on the, uh, the website. Cause it was a very interesting article I read once about, uh, when the Mona Lisa was stolen and the fact that that is part of the reason that it's famous to us. Hmm. So it went from that into a question of like, well, what makes something great? Like, is it just exposure to it? And like, oh, how should we look at art? Yeah. Um, and one of the conclusions that it came to is the more that we expose ourselves to good and bad art, the more that we can tell the difference between the two. Yeah. And which is a fascinating article. I, I take some issue with the idea, the idea of good or bad art, because that's ascribing morals to, art and i don't think we should look at it in those terms how about effective and ineffective that i think is is a better okay is a better way to put it and i think that's often that's what people mean when they say that yes i think so um but uh but yeah that's to go to what you're saying like the more people are exposed to something i I think it changes the way that you that you uh interact with art well and let's go let's go to this idea of good and bad actually meaning uh, good or evil <laughs> because for a lot of Christians and I think that's uh... except it's starting to change hmm. I've noticed which is exciting so now I find myself pivoting to a different group which is conservatives hmm. conservatives I uh, have dug in their heels and I've read article after article after article about mother really did they hate this one of course <laughs> of course <laughs> Um, because admittedly, like I said, with a film like this, the, the film is its message. Like Mm -hmm. the two are absolutely infused. So I don't necessarily blame somebody for looking at the message first and ignoring the artistry. Like they're, they're one and the same. Um, but they're uh, like, they just see everything. And I don't get me wrong. Liberals do too, but I'm not going to, I'm going to talk from the inside here. Um, there's, they see the message first, and if it doesn't line up, there is nothing good about it. And when they hear about that baby scene, oh my gosh, the word vile is said so often in comment sections. The word vulgar, and the way, and just and the way people say, like, I'm glad I never saw that movie, and blah, blah, blah. And another thing that pops up that I couldn't help but comment on in Facebook uh, was someone saying, like, well, I've never heard of the film, and I've never heard of the director. And I responded with, like, you say that as though that is somehow an indictment of the film and the director. You're not having heard of it has nothing to do with its quality. I'm sure you haven't heard of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, 
that last part probably is something of a dig. But anyway. Um, <laughs> well, that seems to be the person's brag. Like, I'm yeah. unfamiliar with this thing. Yeah. It's like, uh, bragging around ignorance, probably not a great call. Um, and that's the thing is, so like, it does. But of course, there are pl- still plenty of Christians who uh, who do not care for this film, mm-hmm. uh, whether they've seen it or not, often not. Um but there's a guy named uh, Michael Knowles who is a known uh, conservative commentator, um, and he he wrote a review of Mother, and I and he's also a Christian. I fully expect, and he wrote it on a political website. I was like, here we go, and he cut it all the slack in the world. He really tried to see it from Aronofsky's point of view, and he said something that I love, which he said, he goes, I know that Aronofsky saw jennifer lawrence as mother gaia like i know he sees her that way and he's like but artists sometimes misinterpret their own work what and he says what aronofsky doesn't realize is that jennifer lawrence is satan Hmm. he wouldn't call her that and he wouldn't acknowledge that there is a satan but if you look at her actions and her attitude towards people and her inherent selfishness and the desire to perpetuate only herself um it fits pretty well. And so the thing is, and he didn't say this as like a negative of the film. He views it kind of the way I do, which is like, I, I see it as a very, a very visceral picture of this, you know, lack of forgiveness and all that. He sees it as a very visceral picture of Satan. Aronofsky undoubtedly did not necessarily mean either one, but the film still, I, I still found it at times heartbreaking, but also a little bit edifying mm. as did Michael Knowles. And so what I'll say is like, if you have listened this far, which is very strange and you're either a conservative or a Christian or you, or you hear that it's anti-Christian or you hear about some of these admittedly horrifying scenes mm-hmm. um, and you just, your guard is up and you're like, I don't want to let that in. I would say go in prayerfully, go in discerning and engage with art. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to ruin you like like uh, we're go- someday going to ruin the moon. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to ruin you. We can only hope. <laughs> and I'd say don't go in necessarily with your guard up because then you might actually be, not be open to certain things. Yeah. But just like ideally we talk with non-Christians all the time and we listen to them. Mm-hmm. And we actually want to see what it is they, and we want to understand what they have to say just yeah. as much as we want them to understand what we have to say. Why not art? Art is communication. So why yeah. don't we approach it that way? And at the core, if we, if, if the, if at the core of this film's message is, or this film's point is to show us what it feels like for us to not respect something that's, that's very good. And that's like a gift to us essentially. Yeah. We can identify with that as Christians. I think we can absolutely say like, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be the people that <laughs> sit on the yeah the counter. And uh, even though we shouldn't like, uh, so I, I think like you said, understanding and engaging with non-Christians, like I, I think that's an idea that we can hear from uh, people who are very specifically from non-Christians who are very concerned about the environment. Yeah. Uh, we can hear that and we can take that seriously and we can listen. And I think that helps towards reconciliation and that helps towards like, um, uh, j- just, just understanding each other. 
So I did want to move into the companion film, which I'll talk about very briefly. Um, listeners, you probably haven't seen it. I don't mean to sound like a hipster when I say that, but it's not a well-known film. <laughs> um, it is called The Werkmeister Harmonies, which if you follow me on Letterboxd and you saw my most recent uh, top 100, which I made last year, you will see that Werkmeister Harmonies cracked the top 10. Hey. Um, it is a film that I didn't... It's uh, directed by Bellatar, and it came out in 2000, and I saw it in Chicago... I believe New Year's Eve going into 2002, oh. I believe. And I was not ready for it. How could I have been? <laughs> um, and it made me angry because I was so tired and the movie just wouldn't end. Um, <laughs> it's a long film. It's a very slow film. Uh, as t- But after I got a good night's sleep, um, I came to realize how beautiful the film was in every respect. It's visually beautiful. It's got a wonderful uh, score um, by, oh shoot, it's not in front of me. I literally downloaded it and I listened to it all the time. Hmm. Um, but there's just such a, a w- wonderful melancholy to it. And it's just, it's, it's meditative. And I think it could be described as allegorical in some ways. Um, there are, the film talks about like religion and just the, and people's need for some type of purpose, uh, mm-hmm. and the need to engage with something larger than themselves. Like yeah. the, the, the iconic image of the film is, uh, this guy has rolled into town and he's got this big semi truck and in the back of the truck is a whale. It's dead. It's like a big humpback whale. And, but he says like, Oh, for money, you can come in and just see it. And you're mm-hmm. like, occupying the same space as this big smelly dead whale. Um, (laughs) but it is actually quite beautiful. And, and our main character goes in and is just like standing, like looking into the whale's eye. And he's just like, it's this thing that is bigger than himself. And it's, it seems to be inspiring, but also sad that the whale is gone and all Mm -hmm. that. So it really is. It's a film that I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, if you know what you're getting into, it's like two forty-five. Yeah. It's black and white. There's, it's I think, Hungarian. I believe it's Hungarian. I think there's like twenty-nine shots in the whole film. I might be <laughs> wrong about that, but like these shots go on for a while. Yeah. Um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it uh, and compare it is that uh, is in some of the filmmaking and in some of the climactic moments. Um, there is a moment where uh, this this angry mob a huge angry mom just decides to terrorize a hospital, a, a hospital, like mm-hmm. broken, wounded, sick people, yeah. vulnerable. And they decide they just want to just tear into it. And so the camera follows along. It's all one shot. Um, and it's chaotic. And you're seeing like, you're really seeing just like the worst of humanity in that mm-hmm. moment. Uh, not unlike we see at the end of mother. Yeah. Um, and then there's this, beautiful moment where the mob eventually arrives at this old man standing in a bathtub and he's completely naked and you just see him. He's right. He's all right there. Um, and everyone is just like faced with like, this is the most vulnerable thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it is just, and this guy is not in a position to defend himself. He's not even trying. He's just standing there. doesn't even have the protection of clothing. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, everybody is just kind of shamed Maybe, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's more than just shame, but everyone just stops and just leaves. And it's such a beautiful affecting sequence for me um, because it's pure chaos. And then 
and then peace. Uh, and I, to me, I don't know, that sequence kind of speaks to just the malevolence of humanity, but also the, the potential yeah. for humanity. Yeah. Um, to understand their own yes. evils and their own weaknesses. And in seeing other weakness to realize it in themselves. Yeah. I think this is, this is a film that does a really great job at letting people showing ways that people can see something outside of themselves that tells them more about who they are and what's in them. Yes. And this is not a character study by any stretch. Like these characters aren't really well defined. Um, the main character, you get some sense of who he is, but he's just kind of a, just kind of philosophically wandering. He's, you know, he's not literally going from place to place, but within his city, he just kind of, there's a, there's a curious element to him. And so I'm going to read this giant monologue. Okay. And, uh, What's I will, the context for this again. I don't remember. This is the opening scene and it's a bar and this young man named, uh, Janos, I believe he, uh, everyone knows him as this kind of idealist, this kid, you know, and, the drunks in the bar, these, all these like old Hungarian men in this tiny little bar, they say like, Oh, Hey, do, do the thing, do this thing. Mm-hmm. And he says like, okay. So what he does is he has them stand up and he starts to place these men specifically. Uh, and then he has them do certain things. And essentially what he does is he has one guy act as the sun. He, he has another guy act as the earth who walks around, but he also has to spin as he's doing it. Then he has another guy act as the moon Mm. who then spins around the sun. So like (laughs) these guys are going, and then he also has other guys act as planets and he goes into this monologue. So here's the deal. It's a long monologue. (laughs) And so I'm sorry, it's probably not going to be that exciting. It's going to be in Hungarian as well. So yeah. Oh, I started speaking Hungarian. Did I not tell you? That's good. Yeah. About time. Um, yeah, One of those you've been, had to. You've been on. <laughs> look, it's only a matter of time. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so here's what I want. This is a monologue about the universe and about the sun and its relation to the earth and its relation to people. So I want you to listen to this versus a lot of what we've been saying. All right. And I'll, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll, I'll try to be a little bit dramatic so that you don't get totally <laughs> turned off. So when he's saying you, like the first line here is you are the sun, he's talking to one of the guys he's placed. You know, yeah. yeah. You are the sun. The sun doesn't move. This is what it does. You are the earth. The earth is here for a start. And then the earth moves around the sun. And now we'll have an explanation that simple folks like us can also understand about immortality. All I ask is that you step with, step with me into the boundlessness where constancy, quietude, and peace, infinite emptiness reign. And just imagine, I wrote justice there and just imagine in this infinite sonorous silence everywhere is an impenetrable darkness here. Uh, we only, uh, Here we only experience general motion, and at first we don't notice the events that we are witnessing. The brilliant light of the sun always sheds its head, sheds its head? Oh yeah. And light uh, on that side of the earth, it's Hungarian, sorry everybody, Uh, on that side of the earth, which is just then turned towards it, and we stand here in its brilliance. This is the moon. The moon revolves around the earth. What is happening? We see suddenly that the disc on the moon, on the sun's flaming sphere, makes an indentation. And this indentation, the dark shadows, grows bigger and bigger. And as it covers more and more, slowly, only a narrow crescent of the sun remains, a dazzling crescent. 
Uh, and at the next moment, say that it's around one in the afternoon, a most dramatic turn of events occurs. At that moment, the air suddenly turns cold. Can you feel it? The sky darkens, then goes all dark. The, do the dogs howl, rabbits hunch down, the deer run in panic, run, stampede in fright. And in this awful, incomprehensible dusk, even the birds, the birds are too confused. And uh, the birds, too, are confused and go to roost. And then complete silence. Everything that lives is still. Are the hills still going? Are the hills going to march off? Will heaven fall upon us? Will the earth open under us? We don't know. We don't know. For a total eclipse has come upon us. But no need to fear. It's not over. For across the sun's glowing sphere, slowly the moon, the moon swims away. And the sun once again bursts forth, and to the earth slowly there comes again light, and warmth again floods the earth. Deep emotion pierces everyone. They have escaped the weight of darkness. Um, first off, I love the way that's written. Yeah. Um, and what I like about it is that it's talking cosmically, but it's also about us. And I don't mean to be speaking selfishly, but when it comes right down to it, we're the ones talking. You know, there's an old uh, Jimmy Pardo joke where he'd say, he goes, let me tell you about myself. Hey, why not, right? I'm the one talking. <laughs> um, and it is, it's a monologue and a film just about our relation to the world around us. And there's no condemnation there. Like, it talks about how we experience fear, like that we are, in, that we are like little children when we, when we face these things, but that... It, but that nature and the earth and the universe can also be very consoling, you know, when the light finally comes. And incidentally, there's a moment where he says, they have escaped the weight of darkness. Uh, keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. So we have a bunch of uh, uh, Bible passages here, and many of them have to do with the earth and God's relation to it. And we're going to kind of transition from that into other things. So we're going to start with Nehemiah 9, verses 5 through 6. Uh, I'll have you take the next one. All right. uh, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Next up is Psalms 104, verses 24 through 30. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food and their pro at their proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. All right. So next up is Job 37, verses 14 through 18. Listen to this, Job. It's probably not the best way to say it, but I do like, <laughs> I do like phrasing. All right. You think that's good. Listen to this, Job. <laughs> Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? All right. So, here we have well established that... 
God is a creator and that he cares about his creation. He sees that it is good. He provides for his creation. Um, and that the wonder of the world we live in and the sun and the moon and the stars, I figured I'd throw that into, um, <laughs> that they, that if in fact there is a God and he is a creator, then the beauty that you see is a function of him. And that is something that, that the film does not, that mother does not want to talk about. Mm-hmm. It, it separates the two mm-hmm. and people compliment it. When people come in, they compliment both, but it's very like, it's made clear by everyone. Like, no, no, no. She, she's the one that did all this. It's, it's really amazing. It's all, it's all her. And that's so that, you know, yes, we can praise the earth. We can see that it is beautiful and that's fine and we should respect it. But in the end it is all, and maybe the, one of the reasons we should respect is because it is a reflection of God's beauty and majesty. But I do want to address the other part of mother. And so here we go. Matthew six verses 25 through 26. I'll let you take it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Uh, I think I'm going to let that one sit. I don't think I'm going to comment on it. Hebrews 10, verses 14 through 17. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. So to put these together, um, you know, the birds of the air, God provides for them. He loves them like it is part of him. He has created them, and he doesn't create things that he dislikes. And yet, we are the ones engaging with him. And again, I'll, I'll go back and say, like, I'm sorry if that sounds selfish, but you, the person that is deciding that sounds selfish, you're a part of this too. So let's just let's just be okay with the fact that we're the ones talking here. Um, and that God, that the Bible says that we are more important to God than creatures and to, and then the world itself. Of course, he still observed that it was good. We have dominion over creatures, but we also need to be good stewards of the earth. Mm-hmm. So this is not permission to just be complete monsters about it. But in the end, like, the earth wasn't enough. He wanted people that he could engage with. You know, that house is big and empty mm-hmm. and probably pretty lonely. And if God is in fact love, then he needs to be able to love something. And here we are as flawed as we are. But here it says their sin and lawless acts. I will remember no more. Mm. Um, and that is astonishing to me. And so I will read Colossians one verses 13 through 17. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, so I wanted to mention, I wanted to include that one because uh, it goes back to that uh, uh, that quote from Bergmeister Harmonies, they have escaped the weight of darkness. Mm. But there's a difference. They have escaped the weight of darkness, and this says we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. Mm. And, you know, I find myself thinking a lot about the episode that we did about the tree of life, mm. where with the companion film, 2001, a space odyssey, you know, where it's just one of the big things that I got out of tree of life is that the, the, the being that made these amazing creations. And just when you think of like the grand Canyon, you think of, you know, uh, dinosaurs, Mount, uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And Mount Everest and just yeah. all these amazing things, even just like, I'm not much of a nature person, but mm. at the same time, like I remember my, my dad and grandpa and I would go up fishing into the mountains in uh, Colorado and there'd be like, we'd fish on a lake, but there would also be like streams and I would always, you can't really, the streams that I liked, you couldn't really fish in, but I didn't care much about fishing. I enjoyed the atmosphere. Mm. And so I would go and just sit by that stream and kind of just hearing the, like the water, like lightly go over, you know, the rocks and stuff. Um, I found so relaxing mm. and I just felt so close to nature and close to God as a result. And so the same being that made that Creek, but also made the grand Canyon and the sun is very invested in us. Mm. And that is, even though, even though we have ruined a good portion of those things, mm. you know, we bulldoze, you know, we dam up those streams, we bulldoze uh, forests so that we can, you know, maybe so that we can build houses, maybe so that we can build malls, you know, um, we make a lot of mistakes and those mistakes have consequences and it is unfortunate that that has happened. Um, and we should try to be better stewards of the world. And, but on those occasions when we're not both individually and as a people, um, forgiveness is still there mm -hmm. and, you know, quite literally thank God that he does not say, get out of my house. We're always welcome in. So I think I will leave it there. Um, as we said, uh, if you are interested in mother, uh, and you've listened all the way, this is ridiculous, but, um, <laughs> do seek it out in the theater. It's worth seeing in the theater and sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's you don't have much time. Um, but anyway, so I hope everybody enjoyed our uh, mother episode. It is, I guess a horror movie. So maybe it would have been better <laughs> for Halloween times, but you know what? I'll take, I'll use this movie that is not horror, but was called that by the studio i'll use that as a transition into halloween times there you go so next week i'll be recording sorry i already did next <laughs> week i will have recorded and will be posting uh, an episode about the netflix movie death note mm. uh directed by adam wingard and uh, reed and i will be talking about that so uh that's about it thank you everybody for listening you're welcome to comment on this post at more than one lesson.com uh, again thanks for listening josh thanks for being here you're welcome we'll get you next time bye